Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bright Lights. I'm your host, Lacey Johnson. And once again, it's a beautiful, blessed day in the hood. We're coming to you live from North Minneapolis. And for those of you who are familiar with Minneapolis, uh, North Minneapolis is considered the hood, uh, even though if you've been to other cities like Chicago, D.C., and the other largest city, we really don't have a hood here. But nonetheless, uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, once again, a reminder to go out to LaceyJohnson.com, uh, subscribe to our channel, uh, click the bell for notification, uh, go to our souvenir stores, buy some souvenirs. If you want me to sign them, let me know, and I'll send them, back, send them here and send them back to you. Uh, we got a very special guest tonight. Uh, well, all our guests are special, but this is a special, special guest. Uh, Broadway producer uh, Richard Roth. Uh, we're going to get into what's going on on Broadway right now. Uh, he's also an attorney. We'll talk a little bit about that. And as usual, uh, delve into some of uh, his achievements in life and obstacles and things that he had to overcome. So, uh, as you know, I always uh, pick out a couple of things that I've seen uh, experienced during the week and talk about them uh, before we bring on the guests. And I'm going to try to go through it pretty fast here. Uh, and, you know, I always have a, a slew of subjects to choose from. And I normally never know what I'm going to talk about until about five or ten minutes before the podcast. But today I've decided uh, yes to talk about something that happened yesterday. And I guess my uh, uh, something that was in the news this week also. Uh, and along those lines, I guess my theme uh, for my intro today is, uh, is trade-offs. Uh, so yesterday, I'm driving down the street, and I look up, and there's a friendly patrol car behind me. And living in the community that I live in and having been stopped a lot of time unjustifiably and uh, the way uh, it normally brought trepidations when you get uh, a patrolman behind you because you never know what they're going to find or pretend to find. So long story short, I realized that I really wasn't concerned about him anymore. And a lot of that was uh, because of the recent, uh, after George Floyd, uh, the George Floyd killing, uh, there was a lot of uh, police uh, actions and things that, that was going on. And, and what I'm getting to, we really reduce the amount of police uh, enforcement in our community. And they develop a lot of public policy where, uh, for the most part, they weren't stopping people for a lot of things. So, and, and, and you know, given the current situation, and I've talked about this before, uh, if I'm a patrolman, uh, I'm very leery of stopping uh, certain uh, people and especially black people because if someone have a phone cell phone and I do something out of pocket uh, I might be looking at some time on that so uh, looking at that whole situation they're not stopping us anymore but you know as a person who live in this community uh, I'm I really wasn't I was somewhat uncomfortable about that the fact that uh, because of my skin color or whatever they're going to let me get away with small things. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I live in this community, and a lot of the issues, the crime way, the lawlessness, the running the red light, not respecting anything, uh, is a result of some of the things that we did with the police officers. And it's all connected. And I guess where I'm getting to as a member of this community, 
I'm not so sure not having to worry about uh, officers, law enforcement officers stopping me for a taillight is worth all the violence and crime and things that resulted from a lot of these policies that was put in place. Uh, so that's one of the trade-offs I thought about. Uh, I know that when uh, there's a uptick in crime uh, in our community, a lot of times I'm expecting a greater law enforcement. I'm expecting maybe to get stopped unjustifiably. But sometimes I think that's a trade-off uh, to keep the crime down. It normally does reduce it a lot. And so, once again, I look at uh, the issue with the law enforcement officers as part of the price I pay for staying in this community. And But if you know what, uh, whether it's that or bad service, uh, limited products and services, uh, I am willing to pay that uh, to live in this community. Uh, and it mainly boils down to the people that lives in this community. They are such great people, and I think it's worth all these sacrifices. And I tell people I probably won't find live lobsters uh, tanks in any of the stores I go to in this community. But once again, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make uh, to live in this community. And then just quickly, once again, we're talking trade-offs. Is it worth uh, me not having to worry about a police stopping me for having the taillight out. It's the crime surge of things that came with it that started with, and I've always been upfront about that, our mayor letting them destroy the third precinct. I think all this is related to that. Is it worth it? And I don't think so as a citizen of this community, which uh, every day uh, see the consequences of some of the uh, ways and public policies that we've de developed uh, towards our law enforcement. Uh, quickly here, and we'll get our guests on, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Richard Roth, Broadway producer, attorney, uh, here shortly. The other trade-off I thought about, though, was the uh, when uh, President Biden said he's going to release some of the oil reserve and let the oil company start bidding on the federal land, et cetera. And I thought about this whole issue of climate change. And uh, I ran for public office a little while ago, and the two issues that I really wanted to dive in first and do some research on was housing shortage and climate change, because I really didn't feel like I had a, a good handle on that. And with the climate change, uh, and I had two questions going into my research on climate change. Uh, first of all, uh, there's always been climate change. And like I tell people, the Sahara Desert used to be water. Uh, the greatest body of fresh water in the United States, the Great Lakes, used to be salt water. In fact, the greatest salt deposit, I think, on Earth uh, uh, is beneath the Great Lakes. So we've always had climate change uh, throughout the history of the world. There was an ice age. So my was, first question was, what percentage of uh, this recent climate change is man responsible for? So that's one of the reasons I wanted to research it. And then the second question, probably the most intriguing to me, is that you often hear 95% of the scientists agree that there's a climate change and man is responsible for it. Uh, but my curiosity was, well, why don't I ever hear from these scientists? Uh, I'd say just about every time I hear the climate change issue come up, we got uh, talking heads, we got news people, we got politicians, we got celebrities, and we even got uh, a little teenage girl, what, what was her name, Greta Thornburg, Talking climate change. Why don't I ever hear scientists? But the bottom line is this. Uh, we cannot, uh, it's a very complex issue. 
And if we think we're going to find a simple solution to that thing, it's not going to happen, people. Just like even police reform, it's a complex issue. And we are, one of the reasons we never solve a lot of these issues, and some people have a vested interest in not solving them, is we take complex problems and we come up with simple solutions to it. And we need to stop doing that. We need to understand that there are many, many, many different factors in most of these issues. We need to research them and understand all of them and perform some type of proper trade-off. That's coming from a guy with some uh, engineering system development experience and scientific methodology and how you really solve problems versus uh, thinking you got the answer and not going through the proper steps and finding out you don't. So I hope that makes sense to our audience, though, trade-offs with law enforcement, trade-off with climate change. Uh, we need to step back and realize these are complex issues, and anybody offering simple solutions to that, you should ignore it. Anyway, that's all I have to say on that. I'm looking forward to bringing in our guest, Mr. Richard Roth. Uh, I'll bring him on now. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights, Mr. Roth. Hey, thank you for having me, Lace. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Roth is uh, very courageous here because uh, I think we're going to do this kind of like cold turkey. He's not aware. He doesn't, he, he doesn't know what I'm going to ask him uh, here because he didn't. <laughs> I sent him some information. So, okay, so how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I actually didn't read it. I, when you sent me the invitation, I was so excited. I didn't know you actually sent me what you're going to ask me about. So I say, let <laughs> let me have it. I'm sitting I'm sitting well, here in Boca Raton. I'm sitting in Boca Raton, Florida, 75 degrees out. It's not New York, so it's nice. Oh, yeah. And I should tell you, and you and our audience, that it's raining here in Minneapolis. And I was just telling uh, my wife, it's the coldest rain I've felt in a long time. But, uh, you know, here we might get some snow. So I'm kind of jealous of you down in Boca Raton with, oh, what, 75, 85 degrees and sunny? Uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to come to Florida sometime this year. There's a lot of good things going on. So tell me a little bit about yourself, Richard. I know that you uh, started out as an attorney, I think, and, and we'll talk about that in, uh, in, a, in a little bit in details in the entertainment, sports, and security and employment. I know somewhere down the line uh, you got involved with Broadway uh, plays and, I guess, musicals and productions and things like that, and so we're going to uh, talk about that also. But before we go there, tell our audience and, and myself, I guess, uh, where were you born and raised and what was family life uh, when you were a child? And were there things in your childhood that would have predicted your uh, achievements and success today? Yes, that's a great question. Uh, people look at me as a New York lawyer and say, wow, this guy was born with a spoon in his, a silver spoon in his hand. But that's not really the case, and it's probably like a lot of your listeners. Uh, I was born in a very, very small town in upstate New York, outside of Binghamton, New York. It was called Endwell, New York. Uh, it was very small population, very blue collar, uh, hardworking people worked their nine to five job. And my parents owned a little retail store that when I worked there, I, at the age of Four, I moved to Buenos Aires, Argentina, because my mom was from, Buena, from Buenos Aires, and I moved back at the age of seven, back to upstate New York. So my entire upbringing, other than the four years where I was in Buenos Aires, was in a very small town, very conservative values, very uh, hardworking, hard ethic, work ethic place. And it taught me that if you want to do well, you put your head down and you work. And that's where I was born and raised for 
other than Argentina for the, my entire up through high school. I went to college in upstate New York as well. And then in law school, I decided to trickle down to New York City, which quite frankly, I didn't like when you're from upstate. It's almost like a civil war between upstate and the city. Mm-hmm. And then I grew to love New York City. So I've been in the city now for God knows how many years. And I've been practicing law for close to 40 years in the city of New York. So now when you were a child, did you dream of being a Perry Mason when you grew up, a lawyer? It's funny you use his name because I didn't dream of that, but my parents were always telling me that they would see the Perry Mason in the 1960s TV show. And they'd say, that's going to be you. And I, I think that the reason why I'm a lawyer is not because I was necessarily um, enthralled with law. I think it was because I was an overachiever. And when I was in college and I was graduating from college, I said, what do I do now? And there weren't a lot of options. Uh, Like today, it was hard back then in the 70s. It's hard now. And I said, let me continue school. Okay, if I'm continuing school, it can be business school. It can be law school. It can be something else. I didn't really want to be a doctor. So I decided to be law school and I, I didn't, it, law school clicked, but it wasn't, it was if I was always going to be a lawyer my, when I was a kid, I really didn't know what I was going to do. So uh, did you practice law before you uh, started your own law, f- law firm? I'm assuming you practiced somewhere else and then I did. Decided I, did. I worked at a few different law firms. I went to law school, worked at a few different law firms and I looked in the mirror and said, I'm good at this. It's, it's nice when you're good at something. There's a lot of things I'm not good at, but I'm good at it. So I formed in uh, 2003, 2003, I said to myself, I'm going to form my own law firm. I had some, I had a big firm that I had partners and, and I haven't looked back since. Uh, I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, I have the same work ethic. I put my head down. I work hard. I'm in Boca. I wish I could say I was on vacation. I'm here with witnesses and a, and a client and a trial. So I, yeah, I, I, I um, formed my own law firm, I guess it's 18 years ago now. Um, yeah, and, and it's working. It, it, it really, it, it worked out. It's all litigation, dispute related, all kinds of different cases, mostly, like you said, employment, entertainment, sports, um, business disputes. And, it, and it's, uh, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, you mentioned that you were good at it. What makes what made you good at it? What makes you good at it? What makes a lawyer good at what they do uh, generically? That, 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 that's a good question. I think that a lawyer needs a, f- a few different qualities. Number one is that they have to be a, especially a litigator, a good storyteller. So you have to basically paint a picture like someone can see it on the screen. And the second is you have to be very, uh, you have to be very creative. I have people come to me in all walks of life with all kinds of problems. And then the third is the biggest is you have to figure out how do I solve their problem? They have a problem, whether it's an employment dispute, whether it's a licensing dispute, whether it's a breach of contract, tort, whatever, how do I get them past this black cloud in their in their career? So I, I found that those three things, as well as being creative, I guess the creative thing is the second, finding ways to solve these problems has made me um, Good at what I am, but there's tens of thousands of people that are good at what they do. So I'm not yeah. I'm not special. I just know what I'm doing. Well, I'm not going to spend much time getting on the soapbox and 
box and uh, talk about details of some of the issues I have with the legal system, but I'll, I'll touch on a few high-level ones. First of all, Richard, it costs so much to get a lawyer, man. I mean, it's it, it, you're almost, and I don't, I'm assuming that's why a lot of cases don't go to trial, but it just seems like it costs so much, and you almost have to be uh, rich to afford justice, and it almost makes justice look like a, just another commodity that the more money you have, the more justice you can you can buy. And if you got to depend on the public defender, you're in a whole lot of trouble. So what right. can we do uh, you're absolutely about right. costs? So, I mean, no, but you're I mean, absolutely right. Right. But we can't expect for lawyers to solve that or politicians, a lot of them are who are former lawyers. But how can we, is there anything we can or should be doing about just the absorbent cost given that it's such a critical thing. In fact, I was just reading uh, yesterday where some gentleman had served 33 years on death row for some, a crime he didn't commit. And I know it happens a lot with it. And you're probably familiar with the Innocent Project with uh, Barry Sheck and Newfeld and how many people there found was wrongly convicted because now that they're using DNA. How do we, but let's deal with one that's just, how, is there any solution to the cost problem? So. If, if, if I'm just barely making, I can be middle class and making uh, ends beat, but if I get hit with a lawsuit, I mean, it can bankrupt me. So is there anything we can do about that as a country, as a court system? Yeah, I mean, you hit a very, very sensitive, strong point. The answer, unfortunately, is no. It's There's nothing, the system can't, it favors the wealthy. It favors people that can afford a lawsuit. What you what you can do is try to get rid of the problem as soon as possible. But you're right. Someone who has a public defender could very well be in much worse shape than if someone that can write a check for ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars. And it's not. I don't see that problem going away. I don't think that that's anything that's solvable. It's just right. the nature of the system, and it's it's unfortunate because. Right. A lot of times, the wealthier do do better, right? And uh, uh, having gone to law school, I'm quite sure you're familiar with the Constitution and uh, the founding framers of the Constitution concerned about the overwhelming power of the government. And you just one little individual, and they put certain things in place. So where I'm getting to is that I think, ideally, you know, we were just talking trade offs. Uh, every uh, person who uh, is involved in the court system who need legal uh, advice and counsel should have the quality of O.J. Simpson's team, especially in criminal cases. They should have that quality. And and I tell everybody, uh, I thought he did it. I still think he did it. But watching no, the no trial. No question, he did. He did. He did. <laughs> I, can't say no I question, wasn't there, but, but he did. It. But I know. I, I got a couple of reasons why I think he did it. One of them is uh, his whole thing about forgive this innocent man, this is lost soul in the, in the, in the shoes. Uh, but I tell everybody if you watch the trial, which I did because I was working second shift, uh, even though I thought he did it, the jury made the right decision. It's not. And, and a lot of people uh, don't understand. It's not whether or not you you actually did it. It's what the government got to go in and prove it uh, beyond reasonable doubt. And they never did it. And even with the DNA uh, uh, evidence they had, when I saw the cross-examining of the DNA experts, I mean, he was almost shaking and crying by the time Check and Newfeld got done with it. And you 
yeah, it's, it's not a question. So anyway, uh, I like to see us uh, somehow uh, even things out because there is overwhelming uh, resources on the government side, and the founding fathers was concerned about that. Okay, so the other the couple other things, I'm run through some things and just get you the overall where we're at today, uh, where you got organization bailing out violent criminals and they don't care. Uh, you have things like uh, D, local DAs uh, decided not to prosecute certain serious crimes. Uh, you got you have criminals being released, and you have selective prosecution. And when we sit back, when I sit back and see all this, and you know, I still remember my eighth grade civics. I mean, I'm just seriously concerned about what's going on here. Uh, as a person in the legal profession, and we're going to get out of here and get on some uh, Broadway stuff. As a person in the legal profession, do you have uh, similar concerns as I do about those type of things? And what can we do about that? If you do? Yeah, they're, they're troubling. You're absolutely right. They're troubling. The most recent situation, which is very troubling, is in New York City, where the district attorney of the county of New York decided not to prosecute Donald Trump and two of his senior aides resigned with a scathing letter saying that's just not right. And so you have someone like him who allegedly engaged in crimes who's going to walk off mm-hmm. and you got these poor guys on the street that they're going after. It's, it's a problem. It's, it's again, I, it's funny because we're known as having the best system, both judicial and, and, and government in the, in the world. But there's some mm-hmm. real problems with it. There's some real problems with it. I think the last couple of years have been a real awakening. You mentioned the George Floyd. That's a real awakening. I mean, I think this country has to slap itself in the face and say, listen, we we're, it, the system's good, but it's broken in a lot of ways. And, and that the Me Too movement, I mean, you yes, name it. it. And so, so you hope, hope that the pendulum swings that the George Floyd movement right. has a purpose. It seems like it's working a bit. The Me Too movement is certainly showing a lot. And now you can do is hope that people speak out, but there's clearly inherent deficiencies in the system in, in who gets prosecuted, who doesn't. Yeah, I, I agree. And sometimes though, Richard, I think it's almost, well, first of all, before I go there, uh, it's not a good system that's issues, but I can't think of anything better. It's like the Jewish system. It's like democracy. It's like capitalism. Yeah, there's all kinds of problems with it, but when I put my thinking hat on and think things through, I can't think of anything better myself, which leads to my next point and my next question. It seems like no matter what system you come up with, uh, it's pretty difficult to overcome just basic human nature. Uh, where we've evolved as creatures with uh, group ID kind of identities. We are mostly uh, the most uh, primal parts of our brains uh, has to do with things like fear and and hunger and and primal type of responses and emotion and instincts. Uh, It seems to me that it's pretty hard to overcome that because a lot of our decisions, which underpins I don't know how I came up with that word, but which underpins a lot of our, our other system and processes are dependent on human nature. And it's, as a lawyer, I'm assuming part of your strategy, and, and I don't know in, in your civil lawsuits, but I know in the criminal defense, is to make the jury just not like the guy. Uh, that's what prosecutions do. And, and then uh, defense attorney try to uh, negate that. So really it's playing on people's emotions. And I've heard jurors, jurors are looking there 
looking at how the person is looking and, and they're uh, ejecting themselves onto the uh, uh, person being accused. And I wouldn't, if, if it was my wife and something happened to her or my husband, something happened to him, I wouldn't be sitting there looking like that. So therefore he must be guilty or she must be guilty. Those are the type of things that I'm concerned about. And I tell people, and I just, I mean it too, if I'm innocent, a jury scares the heck out of me. If I'm guilty, I, I want a jury. I want, I want a jury. Absolutely. Um, it's, it is very scary. You raise a, a bunch of issues. Um, one of them is, as you said earlier, the prosecutor still has to prove his case beyond a reason. So you have to, as a, as a lawyer, poke holes. The other issue you raise is sort of the we that you know everyone has right, right. as a as a lawyer client. You want to basically have your jury think that they're part of the we group. They're part of us, right? It's just right, no different right. than than the political process going on right now. I'm in Florida. Right. Have this say no gay, whatever the hell that new law is, where you know first to third grade you can't use the word gay, and that's the we versus they. It's those conservative Republicans that are afraid of the, uh, their kid being gay. Who I mean, come on. And so it's we they that is very it's it's on the one hand it, it works because you want to relate to other people but on the other hand it's very divisive it shouldn't matter if you're black if you're white if you're gay if you're whatever you know people are right. people and that, and unfortunately that's perv that pervasive in our society in our american society well but once again these are a lot more complex issues i think cuz once again uh i could be against using the word gay in school, but not anti-gay. You know what I'm saying? I could be against it because I don't think it's something you should be teaching. <laughs> I don't think you should be teaching uh, kindergartens about any kind of sex. I told the story of, uh, I told the story of, uh, it is a true story. Uh, they surprised us in, in gym class and showed us uh, a film of a lady giving birth. I mean, I was in the ninth grade and I didn't know how to react to that and I wish, <laughs> I kind of wish they had. So I, I think, and, and once again, I think a lot of it is just dialogue. And I always have a thing when I'm talking to people trying to solve problems, even though I just sometimes know better, assume that we all got good intentions here. And I think we've gotten to the point now where half of the country think the other half doesn't have good intentions. And also respect the, uh, the fact that we do live in a democracy. And I respect the fact that, and, and by the way, you might not know this, I, I got Christian values, but I respect the fact this is not a Christian nation. We are not a, 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 a theocracy or whatever, and that we have to get along. Every Everyone has to get along and bring their ideas and experience and values and things, and somehow we have to make that work. So just point that out. It's not necessary because they don't like They're against the people saying, gay, this is uh, against them mentioning anything sexual in K through uh, 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 three. So that's another little perspective on that. Uh, but good point. Uh, you spoke about the uh, crime surge, and I think you spoke about that pretty good. I've been following that uh, very much uh, lately. I love New York, by the way, uh, and I, but I haven't been back there since the crime surge. Let's talk about uh, your uh, work with on Broadway. Uh, so you're, you're making a pretty good name for yourself, I'm assuming, uh, in Manhattan and other parts of New York City. And all of a sudden, you have an opportunity to get engaged with Broadway, and you 
take a leap and get involved with Broadway. Explain uh, that whole uh, additional, it wasn't a transition, you just added on additional responsibilities. Explain that uh, to our, to me and my audience here, Rich. Uh, Richard. Sure, sure. Before I do though, let me end the other the other um yeah, conversation that's good. on a good note. On a good note. Yeah, the good note okay. is that that because of the world of communication between Twitter and and phones on iPhones and everything, you're at least there's so much more transparency now. So when someone says something happened in a criminal situation, there's a phone. There's a phone of a kid yesterday, a little black kid, eight years old, being held up by the police in Syracuse. And so the good mm-hmm. news is that there's much more information now. So you can't, there's less places to hide and more, pl- and, 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 and we're more transparent. So that's the good thing. On to Broadway. So Broadway has, um, I got into it back about uh, 10 years ago when I represent a lot of people in the entertainment industry and I was asked if I wanted to invest in a Broadway show. And the joke on that is if you want to make money on Broadway, you have to start with more and then you make money. Um, but I did a lot of investigating. And at the time, my son was graduating from college and he wanted a he was looking for a career and he really thought he'd be interested in producing theater. He graduated from Johns Hopkins a year early and three years with a um, degree in psychology, but it was more like business psychology. So we def- we formed a company and we started looking at shows. And it's like any other business, you know, you, you walk, you start with a clean slate. Are people making money on Broadway? Are they losing money on Broadway? What do I get involved in? Do I raise money? Do I invest? And we did a lot of research. And the beautiful thing about Google right now is you can research anything, right? Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of research on what should we, how, to, how, to, how to do a successful show on Broadway, what makes shows fail. A lot of it is an art, not a science. But the, one of the very first shows I invested in, actually the very first show, is a show called Kinky Boots, which um, is a fabulous show it was actually ran in Chicago before it came to Broadway. And that was my first show. I said, this is easy. <laughs> so <laughs> I started getting, started getting more and more involved in different shows. My son and I, um, we had a tremendous return in like 18, 19 was bad. And then 20, the wool, you know, that they pulled the rug out from under us. I mean, not only was Broadway shut down, as you know, in 2020 and 21, but mm-hmm. The world of theater was shut down. There was no theater in Beijing. There was no theater in Melbourne. There was no theater in Chicago, in Minneapolis, you name it. So it was a very, very trying two years. Um, what all you can do during those two years, if you're in my world, is to see what shows are out there and learn a lot more about them. So we sat back. It was not a, it was an ugly two years, but we hit the ground running in I want to say July of 20, uh, July of 2021, we really started jumping onto shows, either investing or raising money or producing and Broadway's back. I mean, theater's back, theater's back all over the country. Go ahead. I'm sorry. What? No, you, no, you go ahead. Uh, uh, We have a funny girl starring uh, Beanie Feldstein opening up on uh, next week. We have, which is on Broadway. Uh, it's a revival, Barbara Streisand, brilliant show. It's mm-hmm. going to be nominated for um, Best Revival. I'm not sure if it'll win. It'll be up against Music Man with Hugh Jackman, but we'll see. In company, we have uh, Macbeth starring the one and only 007 Daniel Craig on Broadway right now. Okay. Uh-huh. 
we have a show which I'm most excited about coming to La Jolla, California called Lempica. Lempica, Tamara de Lempica was an artist back in, she was born in the in 1890 and she traveled through her travels, born in Russia, moved to Paris. She became a world, world recognized artist. Nobody in this country knows her, but she's very, well, not nobody, but very few people, artists know her. She's very big in the East, in Europe. Um, a piece of her sold at Sotheby's in 2019, long after she died, for $21 million. So she's a real force. And we have a whole musical about her, uh, which is just jam-packed with a star creative team, star cast. Very excited. It's opening La Jolla on June 26th, I believe. And then we're going to bring it to you to the broad to Broadway next year. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of other shows that are in there. Daniel Radcliffe's in his show. Merrily We Roll Along. So we're really... You know, we're really back in the game. And I got to tell you, I've been practicing law for a long time and Broadway is so much more fun. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, by the way, why haven't you quit your law practice and just went wholehearted uh, into Broadway? Well, I, I'm glad I didn't because COVID was. Tough, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, right? that's, true. that's a good point. Um, but it is it's going to be a slow transition. I'm going to eventually trans uh, transition to theater just because it's so much more fun. And exciting, and and I, we've many a times given speeches on how to invest in Broadway, why to invest in Broadway. Um, I'll tell you one little fact, which is very interesting. Universal Studios, which is the largest movie studio in the world, they've been around for 105 years. They produced E.T., Home Alone, Jaws. The most profitable show ever of Universal Studios was Wicked on Broadway. Of all the movies they've done, you know why? Because right now it's... 5.45 in New York, in Eastern, I'm in Florida, but Eastern Standard Time. At 7 o'clock, the curtain opens on Wicked 15 years after it originally opened. So you could, if you could get that gusher, right, you get a, right. it's like the oil business, dry well, dry well, dry well. You get that gusher, you get that Wicked, you get that Book of Mormons, the Dear Evan Hansen, the, you know, you name it. Then you could do tremendously well in, in theater. And that's what I we, we talk about. It's a hard business. But nothing's as, as you talk about all the time. Nothing's easy. Nothing's easy. It's not. It's not. Uh, so yeah, I uh, uh, my son uh, went to Brown University and uh, he majored in fine arts and theater. Uh, in fact, he had his off Broadway debut. I don't know. I forgot the name of the theater about six or seven years ago. Got a great write up in the New York Times. But and I think he had. That's a producer. Someone associated with Wicked. Uh, uh, went to Providence and lives in Rhode, uh, went to, I'm sorry, went to Brown University and lived in Providence, Rhode Island. So I know about Wicked. Now, just to be clear, all those uh, plays and musicals that you mentioned, those are some that you are associated with or you're basically help uh, get uh, staged. Am I correct on that? Yes. Yeah, so, so the role of a producer for Broadway is a very ambiguous term. Mm-hmm. You can be the executive producer where you work with the director and you're there every day. You could be a producer that works with the back end, with the marketing and with the uh, ticket sales and try, trying to just increase the flow. Or most producers, and when you go to the playbill and you look at it and you see 10 producers on a Broadway show, most of those producers are people that raise money. They're aggregators. Mm-hmm. They are people that raise 25 thousand in $25,000 increments, $100,000 increments, a million dollar increments. If you want, you rate, we raise money for shows. And that's what the producing is. That's where I'm involved. We're actually about to launch a hedge fund, which is just for theater where people actually will 
invest in this hedge fund, which will do shows to minimize risk. So that's essentially what the producer is. Um, and my son is more on the inside. He goes to the marketing meetings. He tries to work on getting the show out there. And I'm, I'm more the guy that aggregates uh, money. Some shows I won't raise money. I'll just invest ourselves, our company. But yeah, that's our angle. We really, we're producers, but we really raise money for shows. At least I really raise money for shows. That's my right. involvement. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the economics of Broadway in a sec, but I do know that at one time, might have been a decade or so ago, a couple of decades ago, that they had started to bring in celebrities to start in these shows to attract uh, more uh, attendees. Uh, am I correct? There was that kind of transition there where uh, we started putting uh, the P. Diddy's, I think he was in one of them, and I know that uh, my most memorable uh, Broadway experience was I saw Jim of the Ocean, uh, the August Wilson play, and it had Felicia Rashad in it, and why I remember it so is she actually started crying on stage, and I could see the tears, and I was just impressed by that. Uh, but the somewhere down the line, I thought that the economics of Broadway dictated that you start bringing in stars and celebrities is, is is that is that a fact or am i remembering that correctly and absolutely why is it okay uh -huh. absolutely because it because let me let me give you an example right now music man is on broadway with hugh jackman people right, love right. hugh jack women love him men everyone loves him if it were did not have hugh jackman and sutton foster who's a good side to hugh jackman but if it did not have uh -huh. hugh jackman if it doesn't have Hugh Jackman on Broadway, it would not sell the tickets it has. There's a new show that opened up called POTUS with Vanessa Williams. If it did not oh, have Vanessa Williams, it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh get, it just wouldn't do what it's doing. The the what's her name, Lynch from the um from Glee is now in Funny Girl. So right, right. they do attract celebrities, but here's what happens. It's sort of an interesting uh way that it works. Celebrities don't like being on, they love being on Broadway like live audiences but they're busy they're making much more movies so generally the celebrities start coming in around January February because mm -hmm. the Tony nominations are in are in April, late April early May and then the awards are in June leave aside COVID so the celebrities the Hugh Jackman's the Vanessa Williams the you know Lynch uh, all these people all come in right around January February try to get a nomination and do like a six month stint. And then the awards come, they'd like to get a Tony. It's pretty impressive. And then mm -hmm. what the theater has to do is figure out who's the next celebrity gonna come in. And 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 you wanna, you know, celebrities sell. It's the same reason why you turn your TV right. on. Right. And you mm -hmm. see uh, celebrities selling soap versus some other person, right? So right. It, it, you're right, it does make a difference. It really does. And they're a few movies that have no name actors in it that are successful, you know. That's the reason that they pay Tom Cruise what they pay him and uh, and Will Smith what they used to pay him. Uh, you might get still get it so. <laughs> sometimes. So, uh, staying on the economics of uh, theater, what would you say uh, it costs to produce? And I know this is kind of a tricky question as a range here. Uh, average uh, either play or musical, uh, well, let's take musicals. I'm assuming they are more expensive than the normal play. Uh, that's me on the outside looking in, not knowing what's going on. But let's say, say the average musical, what does it, how much would it cost to put on a good mood, uh, musical? Because I think like Kiki Boots, I mean, 
what are we talking about there without being specific but how much money we're we talking no, about I, gonna play yeah i can be i can be very specific um the a musical's going to cost you in today on broadway and again broadway's the most expensive place to run a show mm -hmm. the west end in london which is just as well known is much cheaper a mm -hmm. broadway show is going to cost you're going to have to raise 15 to 18 million dollars to get them to, to go to broadway a musical Right, and right. remember, musicals bigger because you have a bigger cast. You have you have more creatives, choreographer, songwriter. You have you have a whole you know orchestra. So mm -hmm. musicals basically fifteen to eighteen million dollars to raise. It could be a little less, a little more, but that's about what it is. A play could be much less if you have a one person play. Right, it could be five, eight, seven million. So plays are let's say seven to ten, eight to ten, and the mm -hmm. musicals are much more, uh, which. But the, but but that being said, there's more money to be made in a musical. Right. One of the things I talk about when I do give speeches on why to invest on Broadway is that if a show does well on Broadway, the world wants it. Take mm -hmm. Kinky Boots. Kinky Boots went was in Chicago. Then it went it went to lot to New York on Broadway. It was in Melbourne. It was in Sydney. It was in Seoul. It was in London. It was had a U.S. tour. It had a British tour. And now it's coming back to off Broadway. So every if you if you are an investor in in Kinky Boots on Broadway, and you know it does well, you have a right of first refusal to get into every one of those other productions, and they're all going to do well. So so it's more expensive, but there's more money to be made in musicals. I mean, you could just you could make you could lose what you invested, or you can make a killing. So is it me or? Has things changed? Because I just remember a lot of popular songs came out of musicals. Uh, I mean, even, I think White Christmas started in the musical. I'm not sure. And the, the Pork and Best and a lot of those uh, popular songs came out of musicals, and we'd go walk around singing them. Uh, but I don't recall any songs from musical lately that I've heard and was popular. Am I just out of the uh, mainstream nowadays? I'm out of the loop or are songs uh, less likely to catch on nowadays? No, you're right. You're right. There are some songs. There's a song in Dear Evan Hansen, um, which is caught on, uh, but it's not like it used to be. In fact, what we did in a show, which was one of my favorite musicals ever, it has not gone to Broadway yet. It's called Witness Uganda about a black gay guy who lives in New York, who basically wants to fulfill his life and goes to Uganda and helps his, helps the school. It's corrupt and he starts teaching these kids. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful show. It's got amazing African music. What we did was, before I went to Broadway, we actually did the album. We actually just produced a album of, of it was called Invisible Thread. Now it's called Witness Uganda with phenomenal music. And it's hard, it's hard, it's not like the guys and dolls days or the funny girl days or the music man days. You're right. It's hard to get the music to be, to be followed. Hamilton was an exception. I mean, right, Hamilton right. had several songs on the top of the billboard, but it's, 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 it's difficult. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same popular following that it had. You're, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know why that is though. Yeah. I, I don't know either. Cause I know we just, and I can't think of them off the top of my head. We just had a lot of, uh, songs out of musical that was just very, very popular and we sang all the time and I just don't sense that anymore. But I have to admit, though, I'm just I'm kind of out of touch with a lot of modern music anyway. Uh, I tell people I, I didn't know hardly anyone at the Grammys the other night, but, you know, my younger kids knew about them. So I'm, I'm probably just out of touch. So now 
let's imagine, assume for the sake of this question, that we're dealing with a one actor play, uh, minimal, minimal uh, set decoration, set design. Uh, what would be the, I guess I don't even have to set that up like that. What would be the most, two or three most Wait, expensive? You, you broke up. Say that again. Say what it would again. Be the, can you hear me now? What would yeah, be go ahead. The, yeah, what would be the two or three main expenses uh, that we encounter uh, on Broadway? I'm assuming the rental, the leasing of the theater, you got to pay them, uh, and maybe the actor salaries. We got these celebrities in there somewhere. But what eats, what expenses eat, eat up most of the budget? Because when I start hearing uh, 15 to $18 million, I'm like, that's a lot of money. Uh, but that's for musical. And when I hear 5 to $7 million, uh, for non-musical, maybe the average cost, minimal, I'm wondering where does that money go as far as expenses? Yeah, I mean, it's a couple different things. Um, the big ticket items are the cast, the theater, marketing. Uh, a, a show oh, yeah. will, yes. will uh -huh. marketing, marketing is so important to a show. Sting, the famous singer Sting, had a show on Broadway called The Last Ship about six years ago. It's Sting. I mean, there's no reason why it shouldn't be successful. It was marketed horribly. Never made it. Never made it. Beautiful, beautiful show. Never made it. So marketing's a very big expense. Um, and you really, you know, it, it, the production costs are between wardrobe and the choreo and all the creatives. The one good thing about Broadway, which makes it, um, is all the actors, especially the big names, will take less money to, and take something on the back end to try to make it succeed. So even a Bette Midler and Hello, Dolly. Take a little bit less, even though she's a big name, because you want to be on. You don't want to close. So right, um, right. it is. It is. There's some. There's some big ticket items. It does add up. You want to try to, you know, you want you want to try to get 75 to 80 percent of the seats full. Uh, right now, it's working. Right now, we're wearing masks and we're vaccinated, but the seats are getting full. Well, you mentioned uh, plays closing and things. There are plays that open. And they close after a day or two. In fact, I'm quite sure there's some places close the same night or whatever. Uh, what's the biggest uh, failure as far as closing early of the place that you've known that's it's probably, probably not a good idea to remind yeah. you of it? Uh, <laughs> and I hope it wasn't one of your plays, by the way. Uh, have you ever had an experience where uh, your play closed early and, and you just took a bath. Oh, that means yes, I guess. Yeah, I had a play that closed in six weeks. Um, plays close for, plays need three things. They need money, they need buzz, and they need good reviews. Right. And I've had, I've seen plays that I've not, not been involved in, but with bad reviews, they've literally closed within a week because what happens is you need to keep selling. Listen, the theater business is a real estate business. I'm renting seats for two hours. That's it. If I can rent it for $400, it's better than $200. If it goes unrented, I'm losing money. So it's a real estate business. And what you do is if you get the good reviews and the buzz comes, that is people say, I saw that in Chicago. I saw that in London. I saw that off Broadway. Then it'll, it, you know, the, the money will perpetuate itself. It'll keep going. If you don't have the reviews or the buzz, 
then that 15 million becomes 10 million, becomes 5 million, becomes 4 million, and then you just have to close because you can't afford to pay your, 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 your staff. So I was in one for six weeks, which was very disappointing. I didn't expect it to be. Um, but generally speaking, we've had some really, really good shows. Right now we have um, Little Shop of Horrors off Broadway that was running pre-COVID, opened up again after COVID, and is killing it. We had American Utopia, which was David Byrne from Talking Heads, which had an amazing run pre-COVID and post-COVID. So we're pretty we're pretty fortunate in what we do, but we've had some dings. Every any listen, what makes somebody strong is somebody that gets up from the bumps and the bruises. And that's right, what right. Make, that's what makes you strong. Tenacity, yes. Now you mentioned the role of critics, a role of good reviews, uh, to a place uh, in musical, Broadway shows, uh, theater. Uh, the first thing I think about Richard is that that sounds like a situation right for, for lack of a better word. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not. Uh, down on human nature, but that sounds like a situation right for lack of a better word, bribery. Like you remember the old payola days with the radio DJs? Uh, that's a lot of, I mean, just basic human nature and basic understanding of the situation uh, makes me think that there's a lot of critics who may be approached to write good reviews and be financially rewarded for it. But I'm quite sure stuff like that doesn't happen in New York City, <laughs> does it, Richard? So uh, here's the deal. Here, boy, you hit that nail on the head. You didn't even know it. So pre-COVID, there was a and, – and, and by the way, when it comes to reviews, especially musicals, the New York Times has a monopoly. If you do well in the New York Times in a review, you're going to do very well in your show, which mm -hmm. Lempica, my show coming to La Jolla, already did well with reviews. But in 2018, maybe 19, there was a reviewer of the New York Times who – was summarily dismissed and it wasn't disclosed why, but the belief is that not that he was bribed, but he favors favored some producers over others. And I don't know. I don't know if there was litigation. I should know I'm a litigator, but I don't know what happened to it, but I know that was the buzz. And um, that is a concern. It's a concern because it's, it's not fair that these, Books, records, plays, movies can be ruined, especially especially you know theater, mm -hmm. with a with a bad series of reviews. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just not it's just unfair, and that's the way it is. But but I would think that uh, once again, some of these things uh, thinking about as we talk here, I would think that the uh, state of social media and the influence that is happening nowadays would somewhat dilute the influence of uh, reviewers, let's say from the New York Times or any other uh, publication. Have you seen that at all? Not really. It still oh, goes but... into the money, buzz, and review. The buzz is the social media. Yeah, you I really guess need, You need yeah. the buzz and the reviews. Right. There was a show that was off-Broadway called um, Be More Chill. Mm -hmm. which had it was a high school it was like a high school musical and it was it had a tremendous social media with all the high schoolers and it did really well off broadway they brought it to broadway and all the high schoolers continued to want to see it the critics didn't like it didn't last yeah, didn't last. yeah. so the, it's unfortunate but those critics are so important the good news is that there's so many critics 
So right. what you do right. when it comes to marketing after right. you open, right. there's, right. you know, there's from Variety, New York Times, New York Post, Chicago Tribune, you name it, LA, there's, there's, there's a hundred of them. So what you do is you scour them for the names that have good reviews and you use those to promote. But the problem in New York is that when it comes to musicals, the New York Times has this monopoly. So you really want a good review in the New York Times. It's it's not a it won't kill you, but it can certainly hurt you. Okay, so uh, if I recall correctly, it may have changed. Cats was the longest running Broadway show ever. Is that still the case? No, it, it was. By the way, I never liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, if I had to review it, I would. I never liked it. It's got a, a movie just came out of it. Um, right now, the longest show which beat Cats is um, is uh, oh my god, I'm Hamilton. It. It's not no, Hamilton. It's, is it? uh, Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Got Phantom. You. Phantom now has been running for COVID aside twenty six years. Yeah, you might. Okay, good. I might have and 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 think about it. If you invested in Phantom, you're getting a check every quarter. Right. So now, uh, something like well, once again, just the economics. We get some other areas here. If I'm looking at fifteen to eighteen million dollars for a musical, r- roughly how long? How many years does that mu- musical have to run uh, before you start realizing some nice return on your investments? So you're asking really, really pointed, really good questions. So the way when, when you are investing in a musical with the what I call the book, with the prospectus or the investment material, there is generally a chart of answering that question. And the and the answer to that question, getting back to my real estate analogy, is mm-hmm. what percentage of the seats are full? So that usually that little chart will show you with 50 percent of the seats full. We're going to recoup on this day with 70 percent. We're going to recoup on this day with 80 percent. We're going to recoup on that day. And generally, the rule generally is if you have 75, 80 percent um, occupancy, then mm-hmm. you should be able to recoup in less than a year in maybe nine months. Depends, of course, on the size of the theater. It depends on the price of the tickets. I'll tell you one other fact, which people want to know. The term Broadway theater is actually defined. It's actually a theater that has over 500 or more seats, and it's within a certain geographic area in New York. So if you're in the geographic area and you have 485 seats, you're not on Broadway. So if you have a 500-seat theater versus a 2,000-seat theater, it could change. The answer to that question could change a lot because you just can't fill up. You can't get the revenues from a 500-seat theater that you kept for a 2,000-seat theater. So – when uh, I learned that uh, they were bringing in celebrities to generate revenues, when I learned the uh, about COVID and its impact on Broadway, I was concerned that uh, uh, Broadway uh, may not make it back. But sounds like from what you're saying, uh, it has not only made it back, but it's looking pretty strong right now. Uh, it's strong, too strong of a word. Uh, what's the current state of Broadway? So, so to be fair, the big shows are selling fast. The ones that are new and the ones that are unknown still are not there yet because, listen, I mean, we're now passing, thank God, the variant of Omicron, Omicron right? Mm-hmm. But, but, but in January, February, December, January, February, 
a lot of people said, I'm not going to go to a theater and sit next to somebody I don't know, even if I'm vaccinated with a mask to see some show I don't know. So right. it's taking a little longer. Um, the other problem is that some of these shows, somebody on the cast has gotten COVID. They've had to shut the show down for a week. Oh, yeah. Plaza Suite right now, starring Jared, Sarah Jessica Parker and her husband, um, shut down for a week. Another oh. show, which opened two weeks ago, called Paradise Law, Paradise Square, shut down after opening night. So, so it's going well, but we're not where we need to be. We're not. Right. The music man's killing it. Funny Girl's killing it. Company's killing it. But we're not where we need. Buffalo, American Buffalo's killing it, but we're not where we, we're getting there. I think that come the spring, we're going to see just continue to bump up in sales. I'm hoping that we're past all the craziness we've been through in, this whole, in the whole world. Right, right. So I'm assuming that, well, and you mentioned the uh, uh, COVID uh, virus and the mutations and things, the new strands and things. We're going to always have new strands. So I'm hoping that somewhere we get to the point where just because someone in the cast uh, catch a new strand, we, ain't gonna, we don't have to shut down the whole play and stuff, and that would help uh, people that invested in theater like yourself. Uh, what do you, well, first, another thing I thought about, what percentage of the Broadway audience are local New Yorkers versus people from all over the country and all over the world? What percentage are local? Do, you, do, do we have any idea of that? We do, we do. Uh, 60, they say 65% are not New Yorkers. Right. But the but but you got to be careful because mm -hmm. when a show opens up, it's mostly New Yorkers. The people that come from Lincoln, Nebraska, mm -hmm. are rarely coming to see something new. They're they want they're they're in New York for four days. They want to see something that they know they're going to walk out enjoying. So even though the number sixty five percent, when you're talking about a new creative show, the New York numbers are much higher, and you need high New York numbers to bring in that sixty five percent. Right, right. So it's about 35, 65. That, those are the numbers. Do they still have the, like the ticket booth, TKT or whatever, where you can uh, walk up and buy tickets the same day and uh, at a reduced price? Are those still functioning in this era of uh, COVID and crime and everything in New yeah, York? Yeah, very, City? very much so. There's the ticket booth, TKTS. Yeah, yeah there's, right. Uh -huh. There's today's ticks where you literally go on and you can buy a top ranked show for the day that day for less than half price there's a lot of ways to get people to theater which is a good thing it's right a good right thing. yeah and, and, and i remember uh tickets to hamilton even if you were seen in chicago or somewhere was kind of exorbitant well what was the top price of tickets to hamilton do you recall that are we talking two three thousand dollars five thousand dollars you're talking two three thousand dollars they've come down a bit you can actually okay. go to see Hamilton right now for two, three hundred hours with a decent seat, maybe four hundred hours with a decent seat. But the reason why Hamilton was so extraordinary was because, quite frankly, it's an extraordinary show. I mean, it's it's a show which not only took American history and put it on its head with all black mm -hmm. characters, which is brilliant, but the mm -hmm. music is sensational. The Buzz was phenomenal. The critics loved it. You got Lynn Manuel Miranda, who doesn't only gets hits, and so it, it. You know, people always think their shows. I can't tell you, people think their shows the next Hamilton. They think their shows the next Oklahoma. Hamilton is an anomaly. Right. It, right. It, 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 it's it's it will do well forever. I mean, when I say forever, at least for the next 30, 40 years. And you don't have that guarantee with a lot of shows. So Hamilton is something when people say they're the next Hamilton. 
I tell him you got to take Hamilton and remove it from the equation right, because right. it is it is that good. It really is amazing. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up our theater talk here and start closing down. Uh, but when you look think about the future of Broadway, uh, and you may have hit on some of them already, what do you see as the top two or three determinants of whether or not it remains not only in business, but successful and uh, popular and financially uh, secure, for lack of a better way of putting that. So it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Broadway will always be secure. And the reason is because for every show that wants to go to Broadway, there's another, fi there's another five behind it. So a show may not be secure. That is a show may close in a week, two weeks, five weeks, you, three months, whatever. But the theater knows that they can grab the one next and, and right. everyone's launching. There's only 41 Broadway theaters and there's hundreds of shows that want to be on Broadway. They have to raise the money. They got to get, you know, the creatives, the stars and everyone. But the theater itself is, even though it suffered the worst of any industry, because it literally shut down. I mean, travel went down. Hotels went down. Restaurants went down. I guess restaurants shut down, but theater shut down for almost two years. So mm. it was bad, but it's going to be a resurgence. You're going to see, um, I, I, I'm a big believer in it. I know that back after um, Hurricane Sandy in New York uh, really hurt the theater world in November, how many years ago, it mm -hmm. started really rebounding well. And the, the good news about what we've just gone through is it wasn't for economic reasons or our recession, our whatever the money that was lost was for health reasons. So now that we're getting healthier and people still have money to go to theater and the tickets are more affordable, I see the future is just phenomenal. I think it's fantastic. I think now's the time to jump in because, and it's so much fun. It's really a lot of fun. So for someone out there who is the next uh, writer of a play like Hamilton or the next August Wilson, and they're looking to get a play on Broadway. Who are the gatekeepers? Uh, who are the main gatekeepers to uh, getting your uh, genius of a play and most creative thing since Macbeth or whatever, or pick one of the British comedies of Menace or whatever? Uh, who are those gatekeepers that you know these great playwriters have to go through to get there? play on stage within their lifetime. I mean, we might discover them 50 years after they're gone. But with that, who are the gatekeepers? That's another really good question. Uh, it's hard. I mean, there are every producer welcomes scripts. Uh, we read scripts all the time. Uh, most time, they're not worth reading. But every right. producer, because to make a very complicated question um, easy to answer, every show has three stages, the writing and the early, the early creative, the development when you go somewhere other than Broadway and you see how it does and then Broadway. And so the early, so when, as a producer, I get shows in the creative stage in the development stage, like the one going to La Jolla, that's developmental, the funny mm -hmm. girls. And, the, and then, then the, the third stage, which is the funny girl Broadway stage. So producers are always looking for really good scripts. Um, it's hard because um, there's just so many people out there that write. But you yeah. got to just just contact producers and, and see if they're willing to read your script and give them a little story about it, because that's really the way to do it. If, if, if the best thing for me is finding a story that it's in the creative stage, 
Right. I will bring it to the developmental and then to Broadway if Broadway's in fact, you know, what it what what it needs. Some shows we have we never want to go to Broadway with, but right, but right, right. If that's the case, then then yeah, you just gotta and you know what? It's like anything else. I think Lacey, this is one of the things you you really literally preach. Just work hard, man. Just contact right. a lot of people, get out there, because at the end of the day, you you're 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 gonna you're gonna doors will open, but you gotta knock. Yeah. You got enough. Right, right. Yeah, it's like that old saying, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And, uh, yeah, so anytime someone is talking about achievement in life, uh, the word work should always come up. A couple of quick ones. Uh, do you have an all-time favorite playwright? Uh, boy, you can't name yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, Maybe good, good, good. Yeah, I, I should have taken Shakespeare off the table. And of all <laughs> your plays... Uh, uh, I've seen uh, you did some support of a play called The Realistic Joneses and Getting Band Back. I think you made your producer de uh, debut with that. What a, of all the plays, and it might be like your children, though, of all the plays you've been associated with, do you have a favorite one? And I'm suspecting it might be Kinky Boots, so I'll take that one off the table. Besides Kinky Boots, uh, give me uh, one of your plays that you just – uh, I'll tell you, love I, I, do, I do. I do have a favorite, and 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 I mentioned it earlier. It's called um, "Witness oh, Uganda." I told you a little. Oh yeah, about that's right. It. Okay, right, right. Okay, gotcha. And and it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. The music is just off the charts, sensational. And we're hoping it's got the same music music, music writer as Lempika that's going to La Jolla. So hopefully, after Lempika hits, which I think it will, we're hoping to bring that back because it is just. It's my favorite, and it's never been to Broadway. Okay, okay, great. So we're gonna start wrapping up here, and I, I, as one of part of our, oh, let me let me be uh, 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 honest with our audience, a hundred percent here with our audience. Full disclosure, uh, I met Mr. Roth in New York City, uh, backstage at Fox, and we had a great time and great, uh, really enjoyed talking with him. So that's how uh, we connected, and uh, been very, very. Uh, I guess kind and open uh, and talking to uh, me since then. Uh, but uh, I told you as part of our conversation, I often think about uh, young people out there, especially young people in my community who's constantly hearing how unfair life is and, and what happened uh, 200 years ago as impediment to success and achievement. And part of my message is that I think a lot of what we do in life is not perfect. depends on our perspective, our attitude, how we react, our tenacity, some of the things that you, you talked about. And from myself, based on my experience, some type of spiritual compass or moral compass. And, and, and that's what I talk to our kids about. But I want always to let them know, and I believe this in my heart, uh, that they basically can be anything they want to be, set their mind to it with a little hard work, a little discipline, things like that. So what were some of the obstacles that you uh, encountered in your journey to being a successful Broadway producer or just being a successful lawyer or just in life in general? And what did it take for you to overcome those things and uh, achieve the things that you have achieved? I listen, I'll tell you, I was a I was a skinny, simply little kid from upstate New York with not really my parents were very blue collar. 
And I just think it's perseverance. I think it's believing in yourself. And I think it's continuing to do it. And and what you have, what what I always tell young lawyers is that you got to also enjoy the journey because everyone's running to that destination. But the journey to the destination is pretty cool in and of itself. So I think to me, it's just continuing to try to do the right thing by people and try to uh, carpe diem, which is a great saying, you know, seize the day mm-hmm. in Latin. Mm-hmm. And, and or there's a word in Spanish for my Argentina days, uh, to aprovechar, to just maximize. So just, just maximize and appreciate because in life you just have no control over. Yes, so yes. Whatever you do have control over, you just do your best. Yeah, focus on the things you have control over. I, that's what I tell people. Some things you don't have control over. And uh, uh, just work hard, as you said earlier. Uh, you reminded me, I didn't ask you about your time in uh, Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina. Baby, the next time I have you on, we'll do that. Uh, Richard, uh, I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Uh, I haven't been to New York since uh, the pre-pandemic days. I want you to know that's my all-time favorite city besides my little hometown in Natchez, Mississippi, which will always be my favorite city. But New York is a close second. And uh, first chance I get this year, we're going to come there. And I'm going to come see you. You're going to always have a play on Broadway. Is that is that correct, Richard? Anytime I come to I got, New York, I probably. We got a lot going on. When you come, you'll you'll join us. Yeah, I'll let you know, and I'm going to come to one one or two of your plays and uh, make sure we give you a heads up. So really appreciate the time. Really appreciate the message. Uh, you enjoy the sunny weather down in Boca Raton, Florida. And once again, thank you for being on the show. Lacey, okay. thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yes. Uh, so, uh, everybody, I'd like to thank Richard Roth, uh, attorney, uh, Broadway producer, for being my guest. Uh, so, uh, go out once again. Uh, well, check out some of the plays. Go out and uh, check out Richard Roth and some of the plays that he, he's producing uh, currently on Broadway. Uh, check out my website, LaceyJohnson.com. And uh, if you got any comments, just let us know what it is, and we're going to keep trying to get better. And uh, we'll always try to uh, do our best for you and be honest and truthful and open with you. So everyone out there, uh, good evening and have a great evening and see you here next uh, Wednesday, uh, 7 p.m. Thanks.